Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Well, hi there. Howdy. How are you this fine day, Andrew? I'm doing well. Just trying to, like, maybe never think of that Lizzie Borden rhyme ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah. So are we going to talk about crime or what? (laughs) Hell yeah. All right. So... If you haven't already listened to part one and or part two, I highly recommend that you do so now just because, you know, you may not fully understand what we're talking about in this episode. But today we're going to talk about the aftermath of the crime and we're going to get into theories of the case, both popular theories and our own crazy ass unpopular speculation <laughs> unpopular <laughs> um okay so first i'll start with the aftermath now we left off part one pretty much with just a couple of hours after the crime after that things were a whirl of activity and one criticism of the case is that the fall river police basically let anyone and everyone all over the crime scene. There were boys that later testified to being in the barn to kind of see if they could see anything or maybe even catch the killer. Um, People were coming in the house, both friends of the family who were there to support Lizzie and later Emma when she returned from Fairhaven, but also just people wandering in. So there was no kind of perimeter that was set up or any of the crime scene management things that we would know in a modern crime scene. They also continued to interrogate both John, Bridget, and Lizzie. And again, when Emma returned from Fairhaven, Emma as well. Now, I mentioned that Lizzie had been medicated almost immediately after the crime and treated for shock. And that medication continued for weeks. I don't know the exact date that it ended, but her doctor testified at trial that she was medicated and on morphine Mm -hmm. pretty regularly during that whole interrogation period. So the crimes occurred on the morning of August 4th. Emma, later that evening, returned from Fairhaven on the train. Again, she was only what would now be about 15 minutes in a car, but back then it was a train trip and, you know, not considered an arduous journey, but it it took some time to arrange and wait for the right train and all of that. So she came back later that evening. The autopsies of Abby and Andrew were initially conducted right in the dining room of the home. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I guess. Olden times. Lizzie was taken to the station and questioned, and then I think that night she didn't return to the house. The graveside service for the families was took place on August 6th, so two days after the crimes. Now, these took place, and unbeknownst to Lizzie or the immediate family, on August 6th, they already had Lizzie under suspicion And they went to the funeral director after the service, and they essentially commandeered the bodies. 
and they removed their stomachs and they removed the heads from the bodies and the heads and the stomachs and maybe some other internal organs uh, were Damn. sent. Yeah, we're sent to Boston or to Cambridge, to Harvard University, scientists there mm-hmm. to study them. And this was kept from the family at the time. Just, I think, as a courtesy, it was, you know, it's a pretty gruesome thought to have just two days after they had died. And then the the bodies were interred without the heads at that time. So... Later in that same day that she had just buried her her father and her stepmother, she met with the mayor and the prosecutor and police and her attorney, whose name was Andrew Jennings, who had been a longtime friend of the family, friend of her father and her father's attorney throughout his life, was with her. They had discussions, again, more questions for her. And the questions were becoming so pointed that at that point, Lizzie asked, you know, do you suspect someone? And the mayor essentially said, you know, I'm afraid to say so, but we suspect you. So at that point, now Lizzie knows it's her. I mean, I think she already kind Mm -hmm. of knew that suspicion was falling close to the family. Because of that tight timeline that we talked about in part one, a lot of people believed it couldn't be anyone but someone in the family, specifically someone who had been known to be in the house that day. So immediately suspicion fell on Bridget and on Lizzie. When they brought up the idea of Bridget as a suspect to Lizzie, Lizzie immediately said, there's no way that it could be Bridget. Bridget would never do this. Now, Mm -hmm. For context, at the time, the Irish were viewed as very suspect by the kind of English-descended people Uh in New England. And, you know, this I think is pretty widely known, but they were viewed as immoral and dirty and not trustworthy and yada yada. The, The list goes on. And so Bridget was naturally under suspicion right away. But Lizzie stood up for Bridget and said, there's just no way that it could be her. Suspicion then naturally fell on Lizzie. Bridget stood up for Lizzie and said it couldn't be Lizzie. She would never do that. There wasn't any discord in the house. Everyone got along, you know. And so, again, now it becomes who else could it have been? So on August 8th, now four days after the crime, a warrant was issued for Lizzie's arrest, but it wasn't served. And this is kind of an important point in the course of the legal proceedings. She was under suspicion. They had no other suspects at this point. They had run Emma's alibi and found that she had definitely been in Fairhaven the entire time. They had also run the alibi of John Morse, who is the maternal uncle who had just shown up without any kind of warning the day before and also kind of strangely had come without any luggage. Yeah, like the most likely likely outlier. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They had run down his alibi and investigators at the time noted in their notes, which came out later, 
that his alibi was so detailed and so extensive that it was suspicious in its level of detail. Mm. But it was verified. And so, again, we can get into, can we poke holes in these verified alibis later? But it was verified and he was ruled out as a suspect at that time. So all that was left then was Bridget, Lizzie, or some unknown intruder, which most people felt was highly unlikely. But there was a break-in in the house, which again was there, but there was a reported break-in that went to the police that people were home, including the dad, when that happened. <laughs> right, right. And coincidence of coincidence, guess who else happened to be visiting on that date of the robbery four years prior. Any guesses? Weird uncle? Good old Uncle John just happened to be in town at the time. Again, we can't draw any definitive conclusions from that, but it's suggestive, right? Yeah, and we can suggest all the hell we want. (laughs) So on August 8th, a warrant was issued, but they didn't serve it because... Even the police investigators, the, pro- the people who would prosecute the case, and the mayor did not feel like the evidence was strong enough. There was circumstantial evidence, and there seemed to be a damning lack of evidence that anyone else could or did do it, but there wasn't enough evidence to charge her at that time. So what they decided to do was they decided on August 9th. Now, again, we're not even a full week out from the murder. On August 9th, they begin something that they called an inquest. Now, they called it an inquest to, I think, interview people of interest in the case of the murder of Abby and Andrew Borden. Mm -hmm. When they started the inquest, Andrew Jennings, the lawyer for Lizzie, asked if he could be present. They said, no, he could not because it was an inquest and no one needed representation. It was really just kind of a fact-finding mission. During this time, they interviewed Lizzie. They interviewed a lot of different people. And this went on from August 9th to August 11th. On August 11th, they determined that from all of this testimony that they got in the inquest, they had enough now to charge Lizzie. But what they did is they tore up that initial warrant and they drew up a new one. Now, this came into play later in the the eventual trial of Lizzie because her lawyer made a case that they used this to get information, but they already had excluded everyone as a suspect besides Lizzie, and so that this inquest hadn't happened in good faith, and they used that initial warrant as proof of that. So on August 11th, Lizzie Borden was arrested under this new warrant, The following day on the 12th, she was arraigned and she pled not guilty. She was sent to Taunton, Massachusetts to be held over for trial. Now, Taunton is maybe about 20, 25 minutes north of Fall River. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that the matron of the prison that she was sent to was a family friend. And so... She didn't necessarily receive preferential treatment, but it wasn't the kind of horror show prison experience that she might have had, had that not been the case. Mm -hmm. 
Between August 25th and September 1st of that year, they had preliminary hearings. And on November 7th, a grand jury was convened. The grand jury heard testimony. They went over information that was gained at the inquest. And then on December 1st, they were reconvened. They had new testimony that had come from family friend Alice Russell. Now, Alice Russell was a close friend of Emma's, and they had been friends for many years. It turns out, according to Alice's testimony during this reconvening of the grand jury, that about a week after the murder, Lizzie was at home in the kitchen and she was visiting Emma, and Lizzie came in with an old dress, and Emma suggested to her that she burn it because it had paint stains on it from work that they had had done on the house some months prior. And Lizzie, kind of thinking nothing much of it, she went along with the suggestion and she burned it. Alice witnessed this, but asked either then or later to Emma, why why would Lizzie burn that? Essentially saying it, it looked bad to be burning a dress the week after, right? Yes. And this was brought out extensively in the trial. Alice had come to the conclusion that Lizzie was guilty, and it was based on the burning of this dress. Even though Alice had been there for the burning of it and had seen that even Emma had encouraged her to do it. What came out much later is that this dress had been present when the police searched the house. The police had gone through the closets. They had looked at every dress in the house. They had turned all of the dresses inside out. They had found no evidence of blood on any of the dresses in the home. They had also emptied out all of the fire areas and had found no substantial deposit of ashes that would have been left from burning a dress in the immediate days after the murder. Yeah. Lizzie herself never denied burning this dress. And there was testimony from the painter who had worked on the house that said, yes, this, this dress did get paint on it. The dressmaker had said, yes, not only had it gotten paint on it during this construction period, but it had gotten paint on, it had gotten paint on it almost immediately after the dressmaker had made it while she was still in the home making other dresses. So, Again, a lot was made of this dress later, but in that moment, the grand jury finally had what they saw as kind of a smoking gun. They had Lizzie doing something that really looked very guilty. But if you were guilty, wouldn't you burn it in private with no witnesses? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But on December 2nd, the grand jury did finally indict Lizzie of murder. And she was, again, remanded and held over until the trial could take place. Jennings asked the court to hear the case immediately. He wanted a trial as quickly as possible. He wanted his client out of jail. But Knowlton, the prosecutor that you mentioned, needed more time. And that's because of the weakness of of the case. He needed more time to get evidence together. He needed more time to come up with a legal strategy that he felt would have any chance of success in court. Again, we had mentioned in the previous, I think, part one or part two, that Knowlton confided in 
his colleagues from the very beginning in writing, and this is documented, that he didn't think that he really had any chance of winning this case. And mm-hmm. again, we could go into a lot more detail about the political wranglings behind the scenes. There was another person who would have been the lead prosecutor on any other case, but he essentially punted it to Knowlton because he he knew it was a stinker. He didn't he didn't want to try it himself. And so there was a lot going on behind the scenes. But once the grand jury indicted, they really felt like they had no choice but to go forward. And again, there are correspondence that are on record of them talking behind the scenes, trying to come up with ideas of how they could get out of having to try this case. That's how weak the case was from their perspective. And again, this is the prosecution. But in the end, they couldn't find a way that they felt gave them cover to pull out of the prosecution of this case. As you alluded, Andrew, the media was whipping this up and there was no way that the police were going to get away and the prosecution and the mayor were all going to get away unscathed if they didn't bring someone to justice, at least by bringing someone to trial. And so that became the prosecution's perspective, essentially. The police said, well, we caught the person. Now it's your job to convict them. And the prosecutors were like, well, we'll do the best we can with this crappy case that the police gave us. But if we can't convict them, it's on the police. So They were both kind of, before the trial even began, making cases in their mind for how they would explain if this, if they never were able to bring anyone to justice for this crime. Mm -hmm. So on May 8th, 1893, Lizzie was arraigned in Superior Court in New Bedford. Now, again, before this, there had been a lot of wranglings about where the case would be tried, who would be on the jury. You know, there had been so much coverage in the media that they felt there was no way that this case could be tried, um, even in Taunton. And so it was moved to New Bedford. And on June 5th, the trial began. Now, much like the summer before, it was a hot series of days that the trial was taking place. But the courtroom was overwhelmed with people. It was crowded. There were media. I mean, it was a circus. It was a complete circus. The trial continued for 15 days, and on Lizzie's side, she not only had Andrew Jennings, who was family lawyer and friend to her father, which in and of itself was a tremendous endorsement for Lizzie. The case could be made that if he had any inkling that Lizzie had been guilty, he wouldn't defend the killer of his one of his closest friends. Mm -hmm. So that was already something working in her favor. The other thing working in her favor is that on her bench, she also had former Massachusetts Governor George D. Robinson. He was a Harvard-educated lawyer who had, you know, the charisma and magnetism of a politician. And Mm -hmm. he and Jennings took turns at different times in the case. Jennings opened the trial with his opening statement. And it was a deeply personal statement that spoke to his friendship with Andrew and his relation to the family. Mm -hmm. In the end, the summation was done by Robinson. And 
if you want to do a deep dive on this, I really suggest that you do, but it was tremendously eloquent. It spoke to the facts of the case, and it essentially said, based on everything that the defense had shown and the prosecution had shown, there was simply no way that they could convict Lizzie. Again, we can go back into what some of these details were, but I think if this were a case that would be presented today, you could potentially, you could see a scenario in which the defense would appeal to have the case thrown out of court. Like there was that little solid evidence against Lizzie. Mm -hmm. Robinson gave an eloquent summation. He called out several contradicting pieces of testimony and even called out some false testimony that was found to be given by police and others involved with the prosecution's case. When that was done, Knowlton did the summation for the prosecution and basically claimed the opposite, that, you know, if you've paid attention during this, you see sufficient evidence and you will find her guilty. But after both summations were done and it was time for the judge to give instructions to the jury, Associate Justice Justin Dewey, who incidentally had been appointed as a justice by Robinson when he had been governor, so maybe a little conflict of interest, but you know, he delivered a summary and instruction to the jury on June 20th, 1893, that many at the time and even since have said was highly prejudicial towards the innocence of Lizzie. Now, legal scholars have talked about this since, and most would contend that he was within his legal rights to say everything that he did. But if you listen to it, you know, he's very clearly giving instruction about what they're to include and not include. And most of it benefited Lizzie. Now, you could say, well, it benefited Lizzie because it was all true. But, you know, make that, make of that what you will. And again, do a deep dive. You can listen to it. You can find the transcripts of this. But he gave these instructions and then he sent the jury off to deliberate. The jury deliberated for just an hour and a half, and they came back and they found for acquittal of Lizzie in the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. This was not a tremendous surprise, and some later stated that most of the media, except the media that was really unethical or the segment of the media that was feeding false stories and essentially the the era's version of clickbait, most in the media who attended from the New York Times and other reputable newspapers believed that she would be acquitted and she should be acquitted. After that, Lizzie left the courtroom and she told reporters who were waiting, quote, I'm the happiest woman in the world, end quote. Now, that's the trial. Mm-hmm. Kind of, again, in a nutshell. But I alluded to, you know, police lying and Robinson was very shrewd. He never kind of came out and said, you are guilty of perjury. But he had a way of questioning 
that drew someone in to double down on their testimony, knowing that he had in his back pocket conflicting testimony from someone who either had proof or was equally or more credible. And so, again, this case in a modern courtroom, I don't think would even make it to trial. But at the time, there was a very strong feeling that the murder of one of the city's most prominent citizens and his wife in their own homes in broad daylight could not go without some sort of reckoning. And when the police could turn up no other explanation besides Lizzie, that was what they moved forward with. So again, to be clear, Lizzie was acquitted. It was not surprising to anyone who had been to the proceedings of the trial There were many in her community who supported Lizzie, so I didn't go a whole lot into what Lizzie did with her time before this, but she was known to be a very religious, very upstanding, very charitable woman. She taught Sunday Mm -hmm. school. She participated in lots of things for the social benefit of, you know, her fellow man, you know, air quotes at the time. And... Her reverend from her church testified on her behalf, friends, upstanding women in the community. Everyone testified that they had never seen any signs of violence in Lizzie ever. Bridget, who lived in the home for three years at that point, testified that she had never seen any hostility or animosity or ill will in the family, that it was a mostly happy family with the exception of a couple of disagreements that had been since resolved. So, again, when you said, imagine if you come in and she is actually innocent, what this experience must have been. But imagine this really preposterous claim of this vicious, savage, gory, bloody crime against a woman who had never had anyone suspect her of anything as small as an unkind word to anyone I mean, as upstanding as an upstanding citizen could be and being accused of these horrible things. So she had people on her side. There was a lot made at the time from women, you know, whether they knew her personally or women who were involved in suffrage and women's rights at the time, who essentially said if she weren't a woman, she would never be treated this way. She wouldn't be on trial. So hold that in comparison to the summation that you referenced in the last episode, Andrew, from Knowlton, that women, we hold them in such high esteem, blah, 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 blah. Well, here are women of the time saying if this were a man, he would never have been accused in this way. A man who had never had any blemish on his record with also no evidence with no evidence right and again it's just purely this idea that they had no better explanation and again many people felt because of this tight timeline there's no one else who could have done it but the tight timeline is the thing that makes me feel there's no way she could have cleaned herself that fast yeah and i think what we have here is we have a mystery that because of the techniques and the training of the time, people just could not explain and that could not stand. So now why don't we go a little bit into some of the scenarios? And again, there's so much more to the trial and I would really encourage anyone who has any interest in this beyond 
what we're kind of talking about here to dive into it. And we've got lots of resources in the show notes. All right. So shall we just kind of go through the scenarios one by one? Yeah, I think so. So the first kind of scenario is Bridget. Bridget did it. One theory that was thrown out was Bridget was enraged because her bedroom was on the third floor, which would have been super hot in the summer. And um, the women called her Maggie, which had been the name of the previous servant that they had rather than her real name, which was Bridget. And Abby had asked her to wash the windows on the hottest day of the year. Maybe the hottest day ever in Fall River history. Over a hundred. Like, da da da, right? So Bridget, this mild-mannered, by all accounts, upstanding and church-going Irish lady who had never had any problem in the house before, was accused of, like, popping her cork because mistreatment by the family. But she was also you know, killing her employers. Mm-hmm. So like that would be, I don't, I don't know what became of her life, but like, it doesn't seem like a good financial <laughs> decision is what I'm saying. Right, Andrew. But she's like a fiery Irish person who can't control their temper. Is well, and kind of course of, you can't trust the Irish. You can't trust them. They can't control themselves. Like Ugh. for all we know, she could have been drunk. I mean, you know, the subtext of that would have been right there Every for anyone. Every stereotype. Yeah, of that time. But Lizzie right away came out and said it couldn't be her. Now, that fact alone, a lot was made of that. One being, well, if it had been Lizzie, she would have, why wouldn't she have hung it on Bridget? Right. So the fact that Mm -hmm. Lizzie defended Bridget seemed to make the idea that Lizzie herself did it less likely. But then on the flip side, well, maybe they were lesbian lovers and she's covering for Bridget. Right. Well, then why aren't they just each other's alibis? Right. None of it makes sense. But this theory didn't really hold water. You know, Bridget was seen by others to be outside washing windows almost the entire time that Abby could have been murdered. She theoretically Mm -hmm. could have killed Andrew. There was time for her to actually kill him. Whether she would then have time to clean herself up after that, no. And that's a problem that we're going to encounter over and over again, is that little window and how bloody the killer would have been. So, again, Bridget is pretty summarily excluded from most theories that you'll read about out there. She comes back a little bit in this idea that she and Lizzie maybe did it together. Mm-hmm. But the the next one I'll go over is John Morse. So John Morse, again, had been present on the day of the robbery. He mm-hmm. was present, but strangely had shown up unannounced, didn't have luggage. Why was he there? Nobody kind of knew. He was there to visit his niece, but you know, his other nieces. But John Morse had been born in Fall River, like his sister, and raised there. But at an early age, he went west, and he spent time in Ohio. Um, I think horse breeding or some other such. Maybe somewhat shady. His history is kind of sketch. And then he didn't really have much to do with the Borden family until... Mm -hmm. 
maybe right before Sarah died, and then he went away again and came back. So this wasn't a long-standing, deep and abiding relationship of affection. And when he yeah. did come back, you know, he had more dealings with horses. That was kind of his his um, profession and his area of, of expertise. But it was said that he had some dealings with horse traders that were located outside, I think, I want to say Swansea. I'm not sure. Don't quote me. And there was talk of these horse traders maybe not being the most desirable folk and that maybe it had something to do with this. Maybe he had come back, he had stolen, he owed money for horses. But again, none of this had any basis in any kind of fact or any evidence yeah. that could be found. This is all really just speculation. There was also the matter of his highly detailed and suspicious alibi. It's like the kind of alibi that you would design if you knew that you would need an alibi. Mm -hmm. And from a modern lens, it wasn't airtight in the sense that he had taken a bus or a trolley across town to visit his nieces. And then he said that he took, I think, I want to say the 1110 trolley back. And he mentioned, oh, there were several priests on the trolley. And so when the police went to check this alibi, they talked to the person who had been driving that trolley. And the person didn't remember John specifically, but noted that, yeah, there had been some priests on that trolley. And so that was kind of it. The police had done their job, right? But it was noted later that, you know, the city had a really high Irish population, a really high French-Canadian population, both of which are... Catholic and there were just shitloads of priests and churches around and that almost any mm -hmm. trolley during the day was going to have a couple of priests on it. That was just kind of what it was like at that time. So was the alibi completely airtight by today's standards? Probably not, but you know, we don't have any evidence that he did it or that he had any motive to do it. He didn't stand to inherit any of their wealth. So that one is pretty much a dead end as well. The next um, kind of scenario is Emma Borden. She admitted on the stand when she testified in her sister's defense that it was actually she who had more hard feelings towards her stepmother. A lot had been made about the fact that Lizzie, when she was being questioned the day of the murder, one of the police said something like, you know, tell me about the day with your father and your mother. And she said something like, that's not my mother. She's my stepmother. I call her Mrs. Borden or something like that. But again, going back and looking at the situation, she just found her father hacked to death and mm -hmm. in such a state that some people reported it didn't even totally look like a person anymore. And she was heavily medicated at the time and you know we know the tactics of the police and it, it's not a criticism it's just what they do to try to catch people out who may be guilty and it's effective is they ask a lot of questions again and again in different ways to try to make sure that stories are consistent and at some point she just kind of seems to have gotten fed up and snapped i think is even too strong of a word but showed some intemperance in her response to a police officer 
and said this thing about not being her real mother. And from that point on, it seems like the police opinion pivoted to, oh, this woman has motive. She hated her her mother. And it's a it's just a statement of fact. It's a statement of fact. And so a lot was made of that. But Emma got up on the stand and she said, well, actually, it was me who really didn't like her. And things were cordial between Lizzie and her. And, you know, ba-da-da-da-da. So then some took that as, oh, well, she did actually kind of hate her. And she remembered her mom. And then this woman came in and usurped and, you know, kind of spin that out. Mm-hmm. But much like Lizzie, Emma had never had any kind of reputation for any amount of violence or any amount of intemperance. She had led a life, you know, that was pure and above suspicion, above reproach. Was her alibi completely airtight? Again, it sounds like police called on the family that she had been visiting. They said that she had been there the whole time, and then that was kind of the end of it. So could she have slipped out? You know, were people looking at her the entire, you know, who knows? But the police just just didn't go down that path. Do I think that Emma did it? No. I mean, of all the people who had opportunity, she would have had the hardest time kind of getting in and out and getting back and then acting like, you know, changing, acting Mm -hmm. like, et cetera. So that one is kind of off. Then we come to Lizzie. You know, Lizzie, again, for many reasons, was the obvious suspect. Even if she didn't have a tremendous amount of animosity for her stepmother, she did stand to inherit. There was a lot made of the fact that Abby was killed first. And both daughters would have known that in order to inherit Andrew's entire wealth, she would had to she would have had to have died first. So if he had died first, his wealth would have gone to Abby. And then when mm-hmm. she died, it would have gone to Abby's sister, and they would have only gotten a small part of it. So you know, this is turned into motive, but also motive for the sequence of events. But again, as you've said, Andrew, in that tight window of time, it's just plain impossible. It's possible that Lizzie could have killed Abby, but it's not possible that she could have killed her father. And then, you know, within 15, even 25 minutes, have gotten herself cleaned up, changed, et cetera, et cetera, to then present herself to Bridget and then to Dr. Bowen and not show any sign of having just committed two ghastly, gory murders. The other thing is that Bridget saw her in between. So if she killed them both, she would have had to do that whole process twice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there have been various theories that, she didn't actually clean herself up. She committed the murders naked or, you know, lots of ways that she could have potentially pulled it off. But Robinson, in the defense, got the police to admit on the stand that even though when they testified for the prosecution, they had claimed that the initial searches of the house had been kind of cursory and they hadn't looked at things thoroughly, that that had just been a straight-up lie. He got them to admit that, in fact... The searches had been very thorough. There was a search the day of the murder. There was another search the next day. They went through all of the closets. I mean, they did everything short of peeling the wallpaper off of the walls. 
Mm -hmm. They looked at every single dress and article of clothing in the house. They turned them inside out. Nothing. They looked at Lizzie that day for any sign of blood on her, on her hands, her hair. Nothing. They found nothing. They didn't do as thorough a search of John Morse. But again, I mean, it would have been so difficult to hide the amount of blood and gore. One thing that I thought was interesting that I never saw any note of is I didn't see any notes about bloody footprints through the house. Yeah. And there there had to have been some, but I couldn't find any reference to that at all. So the case against Lizzie really was very weak. What were the main things and still are the main things that seem to indicate guilt? Let's just say we take the whole question of how she did it out of it. What are the things that make her seem the most guilty from your perspective? The stepmother relationship Mm -hmm. with the history of money going to her Mm -hmm. and how the daughters reacted. I, I think there's like, you can hypothesize with that amount of information. The thing I keep coming back to is, let's say she did do it. Let's say she found some way to do it. If I'm a guilty person... Now, I've had lots of time to kill my mother, and I only really saw Bridget from standing in the back door. So I could have been, my clothes could have been bloody, but I wiped my face and my hands, and she couldn't really tell anything. The house is locked up like a drum, so nobody can come in and surprise me. And so the first one is pretty easy to imagine, but the second one... Now, my father's come home, and I have to kill him either because he was always the intended target or because I can't let him know what happened or because I need the sequence to be like this to get the money. Whatever the reason, my my dad is home, and I'm going to kill him. Now, the maid is on the third floor. It's 11.10. My uncle's not expected home until lunchtime, so noon-ish. But could still just show up. He could show up, right? But why in the hell in that moment am I going to call for Bridget right away? Why not take more time to tidy or clean? Like, that compressed timeline didn't have to be. Lizzie's the one who sounded the alarm, and he's literally still bleeding when the doctor comes. So she sounded the alarm, like, moments after the last hatchet blow, right? Mm -hmm. Why, if she had done it? Because that only makes her cover-up harder. Yeah, with precision cover-up. Yeah. I suppose there is a world in which, like, full just making things up. (laughs) But I suppose there could be a world in which it's, like, Menendez brother-ish of, like, long history of abuse Mm -hmm. that leads to snapping. And that was definitely speculated at one point, that Andrew had sexually abused Lizzie... And this, the claim, this claim was supported by the proponents of this theory that they had this, quote, special bond that they had always had. And Lizzie had given her father a special ring that had been hers. And he wore it on his pinky finger. And he was wearing it when he died. And it was buried with him. And so, you know, that has kind of like some Freudian overtones, I guess, or whatever. And the birth mother was not around. And so this definitely had been floated as as one scenario. Because, yeah, it's like 
on the one hand, it's like, well, stabbings are often personal. But then when you think about like serial killers, like they stab all the time and it's not a personal relationship with the victim. It's like a personal psychopathy thing. Right, right. Because like, that's where I was like, (laughs) criminal minds of like, well, you probably would chop the shit out of somebody who like really abused you. Mm-hmm. But again, that's just completely making it up. It's completely making it up, yeah. Not to say there's a 0% chance, but it's still just like, even still, how would you have gotten away with it in that short right. of a time to clean yourself with all that blood? I mean, that's the problem that we keep coming back to. Now, there had been evidence presented in the trial that a pharmacist testified that Lizzie had come into his shop the day before the murders and had asked for prussic acid, which was not legal to purchase at the time. And she had a sealskin coat with her, and she claimed that she had moth infestation and that the prussic acid was to kill the moths. Now... Apparently, later it was discovered that prussic acid has never been used to kill moths and couldn't be used to treat sealskin jackets. And she denied ever having been in there or, or this person being her. Again, witness testimony, the kind of weakest kind of testimony, eyewitness testimony. That person had never met Lizzie before that day and had been hearing Lizzie Borden took an axe. Exactly. And so I think most people conclude that that was not a true sighting. But in any case, the court didn't allow the jury to hear that testimony because it was seen as not close enough to the time of the crime to be relevant. And what would it have even been for if they were hatcheted to death? (laughs) Well, again, there was some theory and apparently Abby had spoken to a friend of hers and stated some misgivings that perhaps the family was being poisoned. um, And that is what accounted for this um, mystery illness that had been going through the house in the previous days. Lizzie also went and spoke to a friend and said that there was something dark happening and seemed very frightened and mentioned the possibility of poison. So that's why when the autopsies were done, the stomachs of Andrew and Abby were taken and were tested, and there was no evidence of any poison of any kind. And when Lizzie had spoken to her, actually it was the doctor, she spoke to Dr. Bowen and talked about poison, and he asked about what they had been eating in the days before. And of course, you know, this is the 1890s, so refrigeration and food preparation and storage was not what Mm -hmm. it is today. They got deliveries of blocks of ice, and they put that in a cabinet, and they put food in there, and that's how they kept it. So, you know, he attributed it to leftover mutton, and that's why I say kind of famously they had mutton soup for breakfast. Again, fact from fiction, it's out in the in the mythology that they had been eating the same leftover mutton for three days. I think that's a myth. I think it was from the day before. But in any case, their stomachs were tested and there was no evidence that the family had been poisoned. But in the minds of the media, you know, you mention poison, you mention throwing up, you mention a mysterious woman buying prussic acid and and then they die. 
<laughs> and it's like none of these things logically lead to one another or are connected, but where there's smoke, there's fire, I guess, is kind of what the media was doing with that. Well, and it seems unlikely that a stranger would do it and not do anything to Lizzie or Bridget. Well, that perfectly segues us to our next and final theory of the case, which is the one that I personally subscribe to. And that is that there is an unknown intruder. And the intruder is unknown to the public, but was not necessarily unknown to the members of the house. And this person is known as, or was known as William Borden, William S. Borden. Now, William S. Borden was born in 1856, I believe. And Mm -hmm. he was reportedly the illegitimate son of Andrew. His mother's name was Phoebe Harrington. And he was never claimed by Andrew. And Mm -hmm. Phoebe Harrington died maybe three years after William was born. So... I don't know that much about his early years, but by the time he reached adulthood, he was known to be somewhat unstable. He had spent time in a mental institution in Taunton, Massachusetts, which is where Lizzie had been held before her trial. Mm -hmm. And he's described as having, you know, a pretty major ax to grind, pun intended, about being a bastard, essentially, and never being claimed. Yeah. A lot of this is speculation, like all of this, but there had been testimony, I don't think it was in the trial, but perhaps in the inquest, that Ellen Egan was a woman who said she had been walking down 2nd Street on the day of the murder, and around the time of the murder, she was walking by the Borden house, and there was a man outside who she saw walking on the walk in front of the house and he had a hatchet in his hand. And she said that she was instinctively afraid of him and also that he had a foul odor, the likes of which she had never smelled before or since. And so there was can... literally a man with a hatchet outside of the house. That's what she said. Again, witness testimony, but like someone who theoretically doesn't have a reason to lie. Yeah. Like that is like really strong evidence in a case that has very little evidence. But to find transcripts of this now is very difficult. And so this is kind of where the plot thickens. So she was essentially so freaked out by this guy that she he didn't say a word to her he took one step towards her and she just started to run and then in the confusion the heat the fear she kind of faints a little ways down the street when she wakes up he's gone and she kind of like doesn't know where she is she comes to and then she kind of forgets about it until after and she hears about the murders and she starts connecting these cases apparently she tried to describe the smell she could not describe the smell it was just so foul so overwhelming unlike anything so now if we take a look at william through this lens 
one of his professions was killing diseased horses. And the way you did that at that time was you took a hatchet and you buried it in right in between their eyes and their foreheads to put them down. And so the idea is that, according to this theory, that William hated his father and he hated Abby, who became the second Mrs. Borden when that could have been his mother. And he had been going to the house to either get Andrew to claim him and or to get money out of him. And Mm -hmm. this started becoming a theme of him returning to the house. And so the idea is that John came into town to try to broker an agreement to once and for all pay him off and kind of get him out of their lives for good. Mm -hmm. That Lizzie was in on this plan, but that they kept Abby out of it because Abby would, I don't know, Abby would object to this whole plan. Or maybe Andrew didn't want Abby to know because the timeline of when he was born, it would have been an infidelity in his first marriage to Sarah. And, you know, I don't know. But again, the theory goes, right. The theory goes that he was there to kind of broker something. Lizzie was facilitating it and he would have, she would have been the one to let William into the house. And, you know, I mentioned early on that there had been a discussion of a note that, Abby had gotten a note that would call her away to a sick friend. Well, that note was never found, and no one recalled seeing it, having it delivered, nothing. So this mysterious note. So the idea, according to this theory, is that within this plan, John would give Abby a note that would call her away so she wouldn't be around when this negotiating was going on. But either mm-hmm. John forgot or she got the note and didn't go or who knows what happened. But Abby never left. So she was there. Then that Lizzie let William into the house and not wanting to upset her father or Bridget or anyone showed him up into the guest room to wait until Andrew came home, not knowing that Abby was home and would go upstairs to change the guest room. So William's in the guest room. Abby goes up to the guest room, not knowing that he's going to be there. He's not expecting her. And either out of hatred or surprise, he hits her over the head and then he does her in. Then he just kind of waits around. Lizzie still doesn't know what has happened. She maybe thinks that Abby has gone and is not there. The father, she welcomes the father home and then she goes off to let them do their business. Well, then Mm -hmm. William comes down and now knows he's got to kill Andrew because... He killed Abby. Like, this is the only way he's going to get away with it. Kills his father and leaves. But now Lizzie is not totally innocent in this scenario. She knows that William is there and she pieces it all together. She cries out. He runs away or she lets him go. But then it's in Lizzie's interest to cover this all up. It would have been scandal, you know, yada, yada. And so then the case goes on uh, or the theory goes on in this way. Now, There's no real hard evidence of this, but Mm -hmm. to my mind, this is the only theory that really makes sense. The hatchet was never found. We didn't go into this in a lot of detail, but 
the police found a hatchet and they tried to make the case that it was the hatchet, but it was not the hatchet. And so the murder weapon was never found in the house. And so that becomes a problem with Lizzie or Bridget. Where did it go? How did it get out of the house if they never left and they didn't? So in this case, he would have just taken it with him. Yeah. The other thing is he didn't get out without being seen in this scenario. He was seen. He freaked this woman out completely. And he smelled like he had been killing diseased horses all day, you know. And then the kind of cover-up goes into action after that. And then at that point, Lizzie, perhaps Emma, and definitely John would have been in on it, the cover-up part of it. And that would account for their, like, weird behavior and their conflicting stories and how their stories changed over time. The only issue, which is not necessarily an issue, but, like, her willingness to trust the court. So, in this scenario, she essentially had to be tried for it. And so the theory goes that she said to William at some point, I will make sure that you are never tried for this crime, but you will give up any claim on the estate ever and forevermore. He agrees to it. She goes to trial, but always knowing that she could pull him out as an alternative suspect if things seem to be not going her way. There's also the possibility that even Jennings at that point was in on it, that everyone kind of saw this was just a bad thing that happened because of this unsavory person but we're going to ruin our friend's reputation if we let the truth come out. And so that Jennings and the judge himself may have colluded to influence the outcome so that Lizzie got off. And reputation was a big deal. A very big deal. And, you know, he was a stern, like, tight-ass kind of guy who that would have been a big thing to him and his legacy, you know, as a pillar of the community. Yeah. And so interestingly, not a whole lot is known about his life, but William Borden did continue to live in the area. He did not have any further contact with the family. He spent more time in the mental institution in Taunton and then he died by suicide in 1901. Man. Yeah, it just seems so unlikely that Lizzie could have gotten herself clean. Because it's not like a tub with running water. <laughs> yeah. It's not, not a shower you can pop into. Like, she would have had to bloodily make her way to the basement, yeah. clean herself incredibly fast including your hair. I mean, I guess she could have had a bonnet or something, but like the yeah. naked thing, I don't think, I mean, doing it in a full length dress, a thick dress would probably be the best way. Yeah. <laughs> and but then, then find no a way dress to was ever found and no significant amount of ashes was found, you know? I mean, just think in 15, let's even say 25 minutes, to burn that much fabric that must have been in a Victorian dress, even a summer one. I mean, how long would that take? It would take a while to burn like 
a full 100% cotton dress with petticoats and everything because, I mean, again, she would have been drenched in blood. And to, you know, your hair, it's not like there were blow dryers and... Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, like, it's just... And your face, I mean, just think of some time that you've cut yourself really bad and you've gotten blood on your hands and, like, in your fingernails and stuff. Like, how long it takes to get that out. I guess Even gloves. just, yeah, but again, then where is all this stuff? There was no fire burning when, when people came. And if she had done it and then was going to burn all of this stuff, why not give yourself a little bit more time? Like, don't. Maybe don't even ever send up the alarm. Let John find him, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But yeah. there's just no hard, you know, forensic evidence. There are crime scene photos that were taken at the time. But, you know, I mean, they're 1892 pictures, which grainy and black and white. And you can't really tell what's going on. So, And to me, an eyewitness report of a sketchy man with a hatchet outside the house is the strongest piece of evidence in the whole case to me and again that detail about the smell it's like such a random thing to mention if it were a made-up story and how neatly it ties into this other scenario so, I mean, again, I don't know that we will ever know for sure that it is knowable, but I think this idea that it's almost certainly Lizzie is really flawed. It's funny to come to the other side of this as someone who went in with the cultural knowledge that she was guilty. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has happened multiple times now in our 50 episode run. Yeah. Where it's like, this is not what I was told it was. Yeah. And I really recommend one source that I use for a lot of this is a book called One August Morning, the, Sto the True Story of Lizzie Borden. And it goes into tremendous detail about the trial. And I really recommend that as a great source because it just shows so many instances where police lied or they omitted or, you know, they just and, and I mean... To be fair, it's hard to imagine the amount of pressure that must have been coming down on the police force to find who had done this. I mean, it was such a brutal killing and the media was crazy. But I mean, just straight up lies that they were caught in, in open court. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, there's this part of it can be proven. And letters from the prosecutors themselves saying it was not a strong case. Well, and sometimes, like, the scenario you laid out, it's like, it could also be unsolvable if, like, you have to cover pieces up. Like, if you can't explain how they got in and out of the house because of a different reason. Yeah. And it's like, not having committed the murders doesn't mean that she was completely innocent or knew nothing of the crimes. Like... That's the part that I think is hard to believe is like you were in the environs, if not for her father, for Abby. And a lot was made about the fact that Abby, even though she was only about 5'4 or something, weighed 200 pounds. And so, as I mentioned, 
there was one kind of blow with the blunt end of whatever the hatchet axe or whatever it was that caused her to spin and drop. And she dropped without any bracing. And we know that because she had wounds to her face that are the kinds of wounds you would get when you just face plant on a floor. And so there was a lot of talk of how could Lizzie have been in the house and not heard that, you know, or how could Bridget, why didn't anyone hear that? Because again, the house was not huge. And, you know, I can't answer that. I don't think that Lizzie knew that Abby was dead until after she found her father. And I kind of don't believe that she would have, after finding out that William had killed Abby, let him just kill her father. Like, I just don't think there was that level of animosity and not cer- not certainly for her, her dad. Unless but, it was like a really abusive yeah. house and this was like Lizzie, Emma, and maybe half-brother and like he got paid off a percentage and Mm -hmm. all of their stuff was going to go away Mm -hmm. they were going to lose all their money their father made them uh spinsters and destitute Mm -hmm. like there is a scenario where it's a full conspiracy and like they're like okay well we've got to get the sister out of here Mm mm-hmm we don't want her anywhere near this. Yeah. Again, Yeah. Uh, fully making it up, but there, there's just no way to me Lizzie could have done it alone, at the I, very I just, least. Yeah, I don't think so. I'm not even inclined. I mean, I'd probably still give maybe a 50-50 of guilt or innocence because you can create a bunch of scenarios, but like mm-hmm. this 100% guilty thing, it's like, how how is that? the narrative but it's the news i mean i fully believe casey anthony is guilty Mm -hmm. but like that was an incredibly weak case yeah but when you have a nancy grace screaming 24 7 and like i said i believe she is guilty like i think there was enough circumstantial evidence but at the end of the day it was still a weak case yeah and when you have a situation like this where you know police are acting just as suspicious as any of the you know suspects themselves and then it just muddies all of the waters because if they lie about this what else will they lie about but that also doesn't mean that they weren't up to no good like just because you know what i mean it's like then Mm -hmm. what what's happening but the other piece and not much was made of this but you know, Lizzie was not a huge person. Her father was 5'11", and she was 5'3", and by all accounts, pretty slight. And so we know that the mom was 200 pounds. The dad would tower over her. So even just physically getting the jump on people who are that much bigger than you and no defensive wounds neither of them had any defensive wounds now some would say that means that they knew their attacker and didn't fear them but you know a 5-3 person comes at you with a hatchet like i give pretty good odds to the 200 pound woman or the 5-11 man even in their advanced age so i mean there's that part of it too could a woman of that size and stature inflict those kinds of wounds And then just the level of overkill, like that is the very definition of overkill. And again, there's a scenario with a hidden 
history of abuse. And, you know, I believe that that kind of family dysfunction can be hidden even from people who live in the house. So the fact that Bridget didn't testify to anything like that doesn't mean it wasn't happening. But, you know. We got to get that magic thing that gives us the answers. (laughs) This is one for sure that I would want to know. Because I feel like that final theory about the half-brother just makes so much sense. But again, there's no hard evidence. And you could spin that theory to Lizzie had no idea or Lizzie was an accomplice. So it it doesn't necessarily exonerate, but it's just crazy that the definitive answer is that she's guilty, even after she she won in court. Right. And, you know, I mentioned before that a lot of women supported her, both because they knew her and of her temperament and her good deeds and her, you know, good life that she had lived up to that point. But also, I think from a kind of feminist standpoint, they felt that she was really being treated unfairly as a woman because she was a woman. Um, But then a lot of those same people shunned her from polite society after the trial, even though she was acquitted. So, you know, I mean, she lived a really quiet life after this, although she did start to enjoy the benefits of the money that came to her. So she never returned to the house on Second Street after the murder when she got out of jail after the trial. She went and stayed for a time with friends um, near Newport, Rhode Island. And then when she went back, she purchased a house on the hill, the area that she and her sister had wanted to live for so long. And Mm -hmm. that house is still around today. It was known then as Maplecroft. And she began going by Lisbeth instead of Lizzie. She never left Fall River. She lived there until she died in 1927. And her sister Emma had moved out of the house and moved to New Hampshire some years later. But she died, I think, just about two months after Lizzie did in 1927 as well. But she never got her life back. She never got any semblance of a normal life back ever again. It's a bit curious why she never left Fall River. But at the same time, I think that could kind of go to her innocence or lack of having committed the murder that she didn't feel the need to leave she felt innocent and felt like she deserved to be where she had always lived and she knew people and she had friends and and she did have some friends that stuck by her yeah i desperately want to know the answer yeah but it looms large in fall river even now with the bed and breakfast as you said and so many Bordens buried in the cemetery where Lizzie is buried herself and her sister and her mom and dad and Abby and you know yeah, generations of Bordens so it's a big part of Fall River history for sure dang what a what a good one yeah so fascinating I mean I could uh, I could learn and read about this one forever so listeners if you have your theories your thoughts let us know Absolutely. And as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. 100%. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 